Welcome to the Iowa Journalist Podcast Series, brought to you by the University of Iowa School of Journalism and Mass Communications. I'm your host, Jack Martin. Today, I sat down with Professor Don McLeese to talk to him about his path to music journalism. So, do you kind of want to just start off by introducing you, like who you are, what you do? Okay. Uh, my name's Don McLeese. I'm an associate professor of journalism at uh, the University of Iowa School of Journalism and Mass Communication. Uh, I teach primarily courses in entertainment media, feature writing, uh, arts and culture journalism, music journalism, etc. Uh, I had a bunch of decades uh, experience as a music critic and culture critic and feature writer uh, before joining the university. Okay, so how did you get interested in journalism? Like, was it something that you were always interested in or passionate about, or did it just kind of fall into your life? My interest in journalism was a consumer. Uh, when I was growing up in Chicago, there were four daily newspapers in the Chicago area, and my family uh, had home delivery of all four. Uh, and I recognized, you know, that I, that I really needed all of them to kind of balance them against the others. You know, if, if you took a bunch of different sources, you could get a, a full picture. Uh, my dad uh, graduated from the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern and, uh, and never became a journalist because back then it was really impossible to raise a family on a journalist salary. So he wanted to advertise it. Uh, I never planned to be a journalist. I snuck in the back door. Um, I, uh, you know, I was a music fanatic. Uh, and really through my early decades in journalism, I considered myself a rock and roll guy who happened to be reporting, you know, for a newspaper rather than a newspaper guy who happened to be covering rock and roll. I mean, my, my, my connection was to the music and, and that passion. So did you go to school for journalism? I never took a journalism course. Uh, the first journalism courses I ever participated in were the ones I taught, uh, starting at University of I was an English major. Okay. Uh, I, have a, uh, I have a master's in English from the University of Chicago. And at one time I thought, that uh, that I would be a professor of American literature, uh, and then I I ran away to join the rock and roll circus. So I took you know like three decades uh, detour before I got back into the classroom. So how did what was your first job in journalism? Uh, well, my my first real break was contributing uh, as a freelancer to the Chicago Reader, which was, is the alternative weekly in Chicago. Um, and I, uh, I just started submitting things to them and, uh, and they, uh, you know, they, they were very receptive, kept printing me and I, I kind of became the de facto rock critic at the uh, at the reader and eventually was put on a a half staff 
position there so I could get benefits, even though the, the reader was almost totally uh, freelance. Uh, from the reader, I jumped to the Chicago Sun-Times, which I guess is my first job in journalism. Uh, and, uh, and at the Sun-Times, I also did that freelance for a year. And uh, after a year, I kind of said, put me on staff or I'm not writing for you anymore. And, uh, and they put me on staff. So that's, uh, then I continued to, uh, to, to work in journalism until joining the, uh, the university in 2003. So it was like freelance a way to break into journalism? Like when you started, like, how like, did people really break into journalism when you started? Uh, well, it depended on what kind of journalism you were trying to do. I mean, there were, you know, in, in Chicago, uh, a lot of journalists broke in through through something called city news if they wanted to cover you know hard news cops and courts stuff like that um, freelance you know freelance is it's a very tough way to make a living to me freelance was always just beer money you know i mean when when i hear students talk about career as a freelance writer to me that's like saying I'm, I'm gonna have a career you know uh, working at Wendy's or something you know you're just uh, you're, it's gonna be a hand-to-mouth existence uh, but freelance was a way of showing that I could do it of, uh, of you know amassing a number of clips and those clips were at that time actual you know newspaper clippings not not cyber clips like you have now so so yeah I mean the, basically what editors want to know is you know they, they don't really, really want to hire you to develop you they want they want to know that you can do the work, that you can step in there and do it. And I proved that more than once as a freelancer. So yeah, that was that was kind of the way in. So like even today, do you think that it's a viable way to kind of break in by just trying to freelance or just like sending your stuff into editors? Like how do people, how should people like go about that? I guess if they're trying to freelance, do you just send it and hope that it sticks or? Well, that's one way. There's so many different ways, and we're dealing with, you know, a, a whole form of communications that's continually in upheaval. Uh, so, you know, what might make sense now might not make sense six months to now. And, uh, you know, I mean, there, the short version is that there has never been an easier time to see your stuff in print. If by print, we mean cyber print and that extends to your own personal blog or whatever. You can, I mean, when, when I was starting out, the only way to show that you could do this stuff was to find somebody else to print it. Now you can, you know, you can really self-publish. Yeah. Uh, so in some ways it's more wide open now than before. In other ways, it's narrower because never has it been tougher to get paid a living wage for that work, you know, than before. There's just so much out there and so much of it's free that, uh, so it kind of, you know, it, it kind of depends. Yeah, if I were, you know, if, if I were trying to land a job, say, at Pitchfork, 
today. And Pitchfork might occupy the position that Rolling Stone did when I was doing the work. Um, I would attempt to show Pitchfork that I could do the kind of journalism that they are doing, that I could write with that sort of edge, at that sort of length. Uh, you know, basically what you want to do is show anybody who you hope will hire you that, that what you're doing already kind of fits with what they are doing. So yeah, freelance is is one of the options. So do you think it would be like important for not even just students, but people who are trying to break and like make their own websites and like make their own like start their own blogs and stuff, just so they have like that published body of work? Like even if it's self-published, like it's still like published on the internet. Like do you think that's yes, like yes, I do because it's uh, you know it's there's two levels here. One is showing that you can do the work and you can do it through your own self-published stuff. Uh, the other is showing, you know, it's kind of the gatekeeper model that, uh, that some other editor has deemed you worth publishing. And that's, that's the easiest way to convince editors that you're worth publishing is to show that other people have considered you worth publishing. <clears throat> but you know, the, as quickly as things change now, Everybody that I know, you know, who once was in print or freelance or whatever, you know, they're, they're all establishing blog or podcasts. You know, at this point, it's like po podcasting is the new long form journalism. So if, if I were trying to break into something, you know, I mean, I, I, I might go the podcast route. I don't know. Yeah, so it's, uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's just, it's the wild west out there. It really is. You know, there's, there's so many, there used to be a real accepted career path or paths, you know, where, where you would go from smaller markets to bigger markets, smaller publications to bigger publications. There were publications that were kind of known as, as training grounds, you know, where, where you'd go to a, a mid-market paper that would prepare you to then make the jump to a big market paper. And, you know, it was almost like in baseball, minor leagues before the majors. Uh, right now, that's, you know, a lot of the, 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 what were called destination papers, those are the ones that are laying people off. You know, I mean, it used to be that, that you'd, uh, you know, you, you'd climb your way to get to, say, the Chicago Tribune because the Chicago Tribune wasn't going to hire you right out of school. Uh, at this point, you might, you might have an easier job, you know, easier time getting a job at the Chicago Tribune entry level because they don't have to pay you as much. Whereas the people who are more at the top of the food chain, they're the ones who are, who are you know, taking the buyouts or whatever. So, you know, it's a, it's a lot that's up in the air. Yeah, I mean, it feels like almost weekly that you see something that uh, a media company is laying people off. Like I saw that a couple of days with like, The Athletic, like which people think of as like this rising, you know, per like group in sports media. Like they, they had just cut off like I don't know how many what staff, but they laid off like a decent amount of people, and it feels like that's every week. Yeah, well, and The Athletic, you know, I mean, who could who could have predicted this? You know, it's it's really hard sustaining an athletic focused website when there's no athletics to report on you know i mean they, 
they really have, you know, it's, it's kind of like, and I don't listen to it anymore because I'm not commuting to, to Iowa City, but I used to listen to a whole lot of sports talk radio, particularly mm-hmm. Chicago sports talk radio. And I don't have the faintest idea what these people could be talking about now. You know, I mean, now now that the 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 ESPN last dance thing is over, you know, what are people in Chicago thinking about? I don't know. Yeah, I was I saw on ESPN like last week there was just a bunch of athletes on Peloton bikes racing each other. Like they really run out of things. Yeah, right. Yeah. Because even like right. me, like me and Ralph like talk about basketball on a podcast or even write about it, but like that pretty much stopped just because there's only speculation about when things are starting up, like, which will be nice because things are coming back. But for the last few months, there's been absolutely nothing on that front. No, you have to, uh, you know, it's like, this is a time when everything is changing. And we don't, you know, we don't know what it's, when we're going to see the light at the end of this tunnel. We don't know what things are going to look like when we get out of this. So, so anything that I say today, you know, kind of a, kind of refers to, you know, how things were like back when the world was open. And, and right now, Yeah, that's true. Um, so how did you get to the, like, right for the Rolling Stone? Like, how did that wind up happening? Uh, that wound up happening because when I was doing my work, I mean, I, you know, there were two newspapers in Chicago. Chicago, uh, Tribune and the Sun-Times. I was the rock guy at the Sun-Times. The Sun-Times was the second newspaper. But at that time, I was establishing myself in Chicago through a lot of, uh, you know, beating the competition on a lot of stories. I was the one who got the Rolling Stones interviews. I was the one who got the Bob Dylan interview. I was the one that got the U2 interviews. You know, these, these people would talk to me. Uh, and, but back then, if, you know, if you were a big deal in Chicago, it didn't really mean anything anyplace else, except among publicists and, uh, you know, some of your peers, uh, because there wasn't an internet where everybody was, you know, capable of looking every place. So, so what happened, in, a friend of mine who was now a Pulitzer Prize winner, a colleague of mine went to the New York Times, became a book editor, an editor at the New York Times Book Review, and started assigning me all sorts of, uh, of rock and music oriented books to review. Uh, this, did, you know, this lasted maybe a couple years, but one of them was a a, a history of rock and roll put out by Rolling commissioned by Rolling Stone magazine. And that review, which ran the equivalent, uh, they didn't put reviews on the cover of the book review then, but this started on page three. So it was the lead review. It was the, uh, it was a long review. It's like that was the review that broke me in New York. I started getting calls from New York uh, magazine publishers and the the guy who was then the uh, head of, you know, he was the editor at, at Rolling Stone in charge of album reviews. He was coming to Chicago and he just called me up and wanted to meet. Uh, even though this, you know, it wasn't a particularly positive review of this Rolling Stone project, but he just thought it was smart. 
So he called me up and started getting me into the magazine. And I went from reviewing albums there to having a column there to review, you know, to doing more front of the book features through a different editor and all that. So it was kind of different back then. You know, it was almost like the way the way indie bands had to conquer one market before moving on to other markets. It's like you couldn't do the nation at one time. You know, you establish yourself in one place and then move someplace else. Uh, that, that's what I had to do with my journalism. Now you wouldn't have to do that. Now, now you could you could go viral, you know, with, with one well-placed uh, piece, you know, and, and you could become a sensation. But that's how I went national. And then I moved to Austin and, you know, did, did everything different there. So what did you do in Austin after you moved there? Uh, I Well, I went from, you know, in Chicago working for one of the bigger newspapers in one of the bigger cities and having, you know, it was kind of like the access that if you work for the New York Times or the LA Times, you had a level of access beyond anybody else. I mean, you, you could get flown to England you know, to do uh, advanced stories and stuff like that. Uh, for many of the rest of us, uh, for me in Chicago, for the guys in Boston, Detroit, St. Louis, Washington, D.C., you know, all these kind of, you know, big city markets, but not New York and L.A., we all got kind of the same access to the same people and it was doing the same kind of nationals to we'd all, you know, when the Jacksons, when Michael Jackson would start a tour, we would all meet at this, you know, where, and we would all get the same access, Bruce Springsteen, you know, I mean, we'd all, and at a certain point, I felt like being in the second newspaper in a two newspaper market, uh, you know, was not, was not a good long range career plan because I really thought that pretty much every place was going to go to single newspaper markets. Um, and so through a couple of years of negotiation, I went to Austin and, you know, this was something that people didn't do. You didn't jump from a big market to a small, to a medium sized market. But Austin was so attractive to me for so many different reasons. I had been going to South by Southwest for years. I loved that kind of music. I loved, I loved the margaritas and the salsa, and you know, I, I loved everything about it. I loved the culture. Um, and when I got to Austin, I realized that suddenly I was doing something totally different than what I had done in Chicago, which was interviewing national and international superstars who were coming to town and, you know, reviewing the you know, the, the big label music industry. When I got to Austin, all Austin wanted to read about was Austin. So Austin artists and generally Austin artists without deals or anything, just Austin artists you could see in the club. And I love doing that instead of, Instead of writing my eighth Rolling Stones tour preview story, uh, I could write the first story on, oh, who, Spoon, you know, or Junior Brown, or, you know, uh, you know, just all these people who were playing uh, in town. And so that kind of worked to my favor. I became... 
I became identified within the national press because, I, you know, everybody would go to South by Southwest and I was the lead press guy at South by Southwest because I was covering it for the local paper. Uh, I started getting more national uh, assignments to write specifically about Austin and Texas music. Uh, whereas in Chicago, I'd covered everything. I mean, I covered everything from gospel to, you know, jazz, uh, R&B, you know, whatever. In Chicago, in Austin, I, I focused specifically on Texas. So how long were you in Austin for doing that? I was in Austin, well, we stayed in Austin for 10 years. Uh, we, uh, although about halfway through, I got promoted. I, uh, I became the uh, lead city column, actually, you know, just like the lead columnist. It was a city column, but I could write on entertainment, I could write on sports, I could write off the top of my head. It was, it was like the old days of a city column, what, like what a Mike Royko would do in Chicago or something. Um, and so that, I, I started doing that. And at, you know, at the end of 10 years, I used to think that, uh, that for some reason I was, like my shelf life was 10 years. Uh, my first marriage lasted 10 years. My job at the Chicago Sun-Times lasted 10 years. My time in Austin lasted 10. I, I thought that, you know, maybe, maybe after 10 years, I would wear out my welcome anywhere. But now I've been at the university close to 20 years, and I've been married for close to 35. So apparently I have gotten over the 10-year hurdle. But there, you know, people are able to take me longer than that. So how did you... Did you go from Austin to Iowa? Yeah, I went, I went from, uh, you know, Maya, I had, uh, I butted heads with an editor uh, who inherited me and we, you know, we just, uh, he, he didn't like what I was, I, I had a lot of fans in my column. I won awards as best statewide columnist, but my editor who inherited me was not one of my fans. Uh, and I got my column taken away. You know, they didn't bump me in salary or anything, and I got to do a really good feature work, uh, music and otherwise. But it was like, you know, when somebody's trying to show you the door, you kind of get the feeling that they're trying to show you the door. And and I've always thought of newspapers back then as a younger person's game. You know, I, I was at the top of the food chain. I was making as much money as I was going to make at newspapers. I, you know, I had as high a profile as I was going to have in Austin. It was time to do something else. So I, I actually, I, I, I interviewed a lot of different places and considered a lot of different jobs. I, I, you know, the the people in Eugene, Oregon, were going to have me you know, they loved the column that my Austin guy didn't love. So they, they wanted me to go out there. Uh, ultimately, I decided to take this job with the Meredith Corporation in Des Moines-based, which is really the biggest multimedia corporation between the two coasts. Uh, and I went to work for a magazine I'd never even heard of before called Midwest Living. Uh, and I did, 
I decided I was going to extend my resume to become, you know, uh, have editing as part of my title. I was a senior editor. I wrote features there. I did travel stories. And, you know, being a travel writer is like being a rock group. You know, it beats working, it beats working for a living. You know, you, you go out and get paid to do stuff that other people pay to do. Uh, so, but I knew, I knew while I was there that narrative culturally was not a really good fit for me. It was, it was pretty buttoned down and, you know, mow your lawn. And, you know. It's like all the people there seem to be close, you know, like the people who would have been my parents' friends or something like that. Uh, but if I had not taken the job at Meredith, that uh, the, is the only job I've ever taken that I thought was transitional. Uh, I would not have gotten hired by the University of Iowa because, uh, you know, I mean, it was Meredith that brought me to Iowa. Uh, it was the Meredith connection that in some ways made me attractive to the people at, uh, you know, at the journalism school then. And, uh, you know, and, and so, yeah, that was, uh, it was a transition to something that, you know, and, and, and plainly, you know, this is, I mean, it's funny because I still think of myself as a journalist who happens to teach classes on the side, you know, or whatever, but I'm an academic, you know, I don't identify as academic, but I've been teaching almost 20 years, which is, you know, about as long as I worked at the two newspapers combined. And, uh, and so, yeah, the, you know, this is, I, I often thought, you know, what am I going to want to do when I grow up? And this is apparently what I'm doing now that I'm grown up. So what do you like about being like a journalism teacher? I love te I love the teaching aspect of it. I love dealing with students, uh, it's a cliche, but in my, in my case, it's true. I learn as much or more from them as they do for me. Uh, I like, uh, you know, I, I like instilling, you know, kind of the combination of having basic principles that I think are across the board and transcend medium time, whatever, you know, things that, that if you're going to do journalism, you have to adhere to certain principles, but also to be aware of how constantly things are changing. And I'm always talking about, you know, not, not only more rapidly, but more radically, you know, I mean, it's like the, the, the degree of change and the pace of change are both accelerating. Uh, and if you doubt that, just look at how quickly people are talking about defund the police, you know, something that would have been a radical notion a month ago, and now it's part of the conversation. It's poorly branded, you know, it's, it's not, you know, it's a, it's a confusing thing, but, but basically the, the whole concept makes a whole lot of sense but people wouldn't have listened to it a month ago right for sure it just i guess everything like just the whole 2020 just like the way the news has yeah. been prepared, this, transmitted and all these big events have been going on in the way that it's been 
kind of just like communicated to the public has been super interesting. Yeah. You couldn't, I mean, if you had written a novel about this year, uh, anticipating all this, you could never have gotten it published. It would have seemed outlandish. You know, it's like, it's like one thing on top of the other. You know, it's, we, we have this, this once in a millennium uh, pandemic that locks everybody down. And on top of that, we've got the, the, the George Floyd thing, you know, just set in a tinderbox to all, you know, centuries of racial strife you know it's like everything coming to a it makes you wonder you know what's next is it is it going to be martial law on the streets is it going to be an earthquake taking out the entire you know i mean what what's it what's what's it going to be who knows i think hopefully it simmers down but i keep seeing a bunch of stuff about how this year's new year's eve parties will be the best yeah, right. Yeah, get rid of it. You know, let's have New Year's Eve in July. Let's just, yeah, let's write this year off and get a, and everybody thought that 2019 was such a bad year, you know, it's like, I, guess. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so, I used, you mentioned a lot of, like, artists that you've interviewed, and so, like, who, like, who, like, who are some, like, the most noteworthy artists you've ever talked to, and, like, well, it, it, you know, I've done this for a long time. And so I've interviewed a lot of people. My biggest thrill was interviewing Bob Dylan, uh, you know, at, uh, and that, that was just, that just worked out great for me. I now teach a course in Bob Dylan. It's probably my favorite course to teach, you know, cause I think Dylan is just such a significant figure in 20th century culture and now going into the 21st century. Uh, but I mean, I, you know, I interviewed, it, like for a while there, it would be easier to tell you who I didn't interview than who I did, I, you know, I mean, I, I've interviewed all of the Rolling Stones numerous times, except for Charlie Watts. Uh, I interviewed Paul McCartney. I interviewed Madonna. Uh, I interviewed uh, I interviewed Saul Bellow, who won the Nobel Prize for Literature as a Chicago. Uh, you know, I interviewed Ornette Coleman, who invented free jazz. Uh, I interviewed Thomas Dorsey, who is the father of gospel music. He invented gospel music. Uh, you know, it just, it, it depends on who I'm trying to impress, you know, and, and I can't impress you guys because people your generation, you know, it's, it's a whole new group of people who I, you know, I, I kind of, you know, all, most 90% of my major interviewing was done in Chicago. So by the time I got to Austin, I was mainly talking to Austin people. I, I was no longer, you know, so, so when we're talking all of my big interviewing, we're, we're basically talking between, you know, 1980 and 1990. So people who were big then, I interviewed. Okay. Uh, you get like nervous going into an interview with Mick Jagger, Madonna, like, what do you like? Yeah. Like how, yeah, originally, yeah, but the, here's the thing. I mean, I, you know, I, you do it on a couple of different levels. On on one level, I mean, I am, believe it or not, a very shy person. I have trouble talking to strangers. Uh, 
as just me, I would have, you know, I would never approach Keith Richards, you know, I'd be scared to death to approach Keith Richards and just, you know, make small talk. But I was aware early on that what I was, you know, that they weren't talking to me, that they were talking to 800,000 readers or whatever it was at the time of the Chicago Sun-Times. You know, I, I was kind of the conduit and, and I wasn't there to become their buddy or to have them think well of me or anything like that. I was there to get the story. So yeah, for a while there, every time I would be uh, a little nervous because, you know, I'm also a little nervous the first class of every semester walking into the classroom. You know, I mean, all these people who I don't know and, and I have to make it work. Mm -hmm. But it's a similar so sort of situation in that if you've done it for a while, you know it's going to work. You're not quite sure how it's going to work, but you're pretty sure you've got the safety net, and the safety net is experience. So, so yeah, I was I, always nervous. I'd be nervous today, but I'd also be able to do it because I've done it so many times, you know. And and they've you know the stories have come out well, and sometimes come out better than I had any reason to anticipate. So, like, how does, like, an interview like that get set up? Is it through the publisher and, like, an agent of the artist? Uh, it's usually through a publicist and, you know, uh, acts high, you know, publicists early on in a band's career are to generate publicity. Uh, so, you know, you hire a publicist to try to get you as much publicity as you can. Um uh, at a certain, you know, as you go higher up the mountain, the publicist's job is often to restrict publicity, to to say no, and to control publicity. So, yeah, my, uh, you know, part of it was having certain uh, publicists who, for whatever reason, liked me, not necessarily because I was, I was writing favorable stuff all or that they could control me, but just the fact that they thought that their artists would enjoy talking with me. They thought that this wouldn't be as painful as some others. Uh, some publicists do a lot of negotiating, uh, which I refuse to do. I mean, uh, you know, we'll, but this happens. I mean, you know, they'll only talk to Rolling Stone if they're promised the cover, or they'll only talk to, you know, something if they're promised this writer or that. And, you know, and I'd get that sort of stuff. You know, we will, we will talk to you if you can promise us the cover of the uh, Sunday uh, art section. And I'd say, I don't promise anything. My, you know, if, my stories generally receive strong consideration for Sunday arts if it's a good story. So, so let's do the story, you know, and let's see what we can come up with. But, uh, yeah, it, it generally starts with, with a publicist. It starts with gatekeepers. Another thing that was great about going to Austin, in Chicago, I would have to, if I wanted to talk to a Chicago artist, I would often have to call New York or LA, set up an appointment, with a uh, you know, through a publicist to deal with somebody who lived less than a mile from me in Austin, I had everybody's home phone number. You know, I mean, if, if I wanted to talk to anybody, I'd I just give them a call. Uh, 
I mean, these people, you know, it was a community where people became not friends because you were reporting on them, but you didn't need to have layers of intermediaries to connect you. That's nice. That's the thing that's nice now is that everyone's on social media. So like the company that I work with, just a lot of people that we've interviewed or done work with, you can just reach out to them on Instagram or sure. like direct communication, which is super nice to set things up. And it's been really cool. It definitely levels the playing field. Yeah, yeah. Social media. You know, one thing I love about Facebook is that in my Facebook, you know, thread, I mean, there are, there are, I have friends who are actual friends. Uh, I have friends who were readers in Chicago and Austin. I have friends who are people, you know, artists who I interviewed. I have friends, you know, who are colleagues who did the same sort of work that I did in different cities or worked at the same page. You know, it's like this, this whole community and nobody's any better than anybody else. It isn't that because somebody's an artist, they have the last word, or because I was a journalist, I'm better than you because you were a reader or whatever. You know, so, yeah, I like that. Yeah. Um, so what was it like interviewing Bob Dylan? Like if that's like your guy, like that's who, like what's like, how do you- Well, I'd read so much about <clears throat> how difficult Dylan could be. And I'd seen, you know, I mean, Dylan was known as being a very combative, deceptive interviewee, that he wouldn't necessarily tell you the truth. And that he, you know, that he just liked making things difficult, that he liked playing games with you. Um, I was prepared for that. And I ended up having just, you know, an, an unexpectedly delightful and illuminating encounter with him, um, where he was just totally open. Uh, and, and as I wrote in the story uh, early on, he said, you can ask me anything. I just love to talk. Uh, you know, and this was not the Bob Dylan that I was expecting. So it, uh, it may have just been another one of the Dylan persona or guises or whatever, but it, it was one that made for very easy interviewing at a, you know, during, you know, and I was very, you know, I'm more nervous before that one. He, he was the most, he was the person who was hardest to get to that I was able to interview. And not only did it go great, but that it was the tour where he was being backed by Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And they invited me to go to New Zealand with them. I could have had exclusive access to, you know, they were touring elsewhere before coming to the States. And, uh, and they, you know, they invited me to go with them. Uh, and my, at that time, Rupert, the notorious Rupert Murdoch owned our newspaper and had all the money in the world and refused to okay this. And, and that's 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 what started pissing me off so much that I ended up uh, going to you know one of the reasons I went to Austin. Yeah, I'd be pissed too. That's like yeah, yeah. It would have been it would have been amazing. You know, the one thing about my you know, and I have no career plan. I've had no career path, but generally, what I have done has been out of childish petulance. You know, if you don't let me do what I want to do, I'm going to take my ball and go home. And I did that, you know, in Chicago, I did that. People thought I was nuts for leaving Chicago for Austin. 
people thought I was nuts leaving Austin for Iowa. And the fact remains that if I had stayed at either of those newspapers that I thought I was going to be at forever, I'd be out of a job now. I, you know, I would have been downsized. Uh, pretty much everybody I knew who worked for either is, uh, is gone from there. So, so sometimes you just follow your hunches and things work out. So do you think that movement is important for a journalism career, like going and writing for different outlets in different parts of the country on different topics is good for a career, like to extend it? Depends on what sort of career you want. Uh, I have friends who stayed in Chicago for their entire careers and, uh, and they've had very, you know, they've had great careers. Uh, the, partic the particular career I had was not one that I anticipated. I mean, I never anticipated going into journalism at all. But, uh, you know, what I, it worked, the way it worked out worked out well for me. A lot of people have moved a lot more than I have. Typically, uh, newspaper careers, journalism careers have been more like radio careers, you know, where you spend a couple years in this market, then a couple years in that market, you just keep going uh, bigger and bigger, and, and you move every few years. Uh, my, mine worked out well for me. Uh, I, you know, I, I, it does give you, you know, you got to have stuff to write about. The more experiences you have, the more fully formed your perspective will be. Uh, but people who's, who spend their, their whole lives in one market, they, you know, they, they have a depth of experience there that's unrivaled. And they, you know, and they have all the connections, they can make the phone calls, you know, to, they know where the bodies are buried, you know? It's, uh, so it, uh, there, there's pros and cons to either. Okay, so I guess kind of to close out, what, what kind of advice would you give to journalists who are just starting their careers or like a students who are just still trying to like figure out like their career path and what they want to do when they graduate? I would be open to possibility and I would be flexible. I wouldn't go into it with a fixed notion of I want to do this for this place. I would let, I mean, my... The tenet guiding my career, wherever it's been, has been that good work leads to more good work. That if you do what, do what you're doing to the best of your ability, that that will be noticed by other people and doors will open for you. Uh, I never had a seven-year plan or anything like that. I just, you know, I just did the work. Uh, I, you know, what I firmly believe is that we have never been able to do before now the quality of journalism that we can do now. We have all these tools at our disposal. We have this, this incredible cyber reach, you know, be, being able to look stuff up and being able to connect with stuff. We also, at this point, have a... Uh, a greater appetite for quality journalism than ever before. I mean, places like the New York Times and the Washington Post and whoever, they're reaching exponentially more people than they ever did during their legacy print heyday. So, 
So we're doing something better than we've ever been able to do before. People want it more than they've ever wanted it before. And somehow in between, the business model is broken. And the business, you know, and I'm not sure how that will play itself out, but I know that, you know, if, I, I think being a journalism major, you know, embarking on a journalism career, that these are terrifically exciting times. And whether that turns out that, that you end up working for yourself as a one-man band, whether it, you know, whether Iowa Watch becomes kind of the, uh, you know, the civic supported model, whether, you know, we're, we're seeing the end of something, but we're also seeing the beginning of something. And, you know, change, you know, change is painful, but change is also hopeful. Uh, so, you know, just, just, just do the work well and be quick on your feet. Be open to possibility. Be looking for opportunity. Be, uh, be aware of pretty much anything that could allow you to to do more good work uh, and, and follow your gut and follow your heart. What is it that you want to do? You know, there's plainly going to be other ways to make more money. You know, there's, and there's, there's God knows all sorts of ways to find more security. So, so you decide early on, you know, what, how important are money and security to you and how important are adventure and, you know, just seeing the world anew every day. Uh, journalism gives you a front row seat to what's going on. Uh, so I, you know, I have never regretted a single day and I've paid my mortgage and put food on the table, you know, so. That's how you gotta do it. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, you can find us at clas.uiowa.edu backslash sjmc backslash and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you.